Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating. Hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. So today I'm speaking with author, journalist and broadcaster Hayley Campbell, who has recently released a fascinating book called All the Living and the Dead. It's an exploration of those people whose work in many cases we couldn't live without, but to whom we rarely give any thought. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Hayley, all the way from the UK. Thank you for having me. Your book is fascinating and I really do want to talk some more about that, but it sounds like you had a fascination with death even as a child. So what influenced that that fascination for you? Well, I think I was like, I think all kids are interested in things and um, I don't think it's strange for a kid to have lots of questions about death. I do think it's strange that we don't know how to answer them. And that as a kid asking questions, I noticed that adults seem to dodge them or fudge them. Or when I was at school, which was a Catholic school, I'd be given answers to questions about death, which were about heaven. And I had uh, practical questions about what happened to bodies and things, which just weren't answered and were further confused during Easter when I was told about Jesus coming back to life. And I was like, but that, does that happen? But at home, my dad's a, a comic book artist and he was working on a book called From Hell, which is about the Jack the Ripper murders. And he was working on it from when I was about three to when I was 13. So that's a huge part of a kid's life where they're forming, you're kind of getting your head together about what things are. And he had lots of pictures up you know, that he was using for reference, you know, autopsy pictures and crime scene photographs of the women. And I just wanted to know all about them. And when I asked questions, he would tell me. And it was outside of the house that I found that most people didn't know what to do with my questions. And as I grew up, I found that didn't change. People were still strange about death when you brought it up. If you'd learned a strange new fact and told the wrong person, you were looked at like you were, you know, from the Adams family or something. Yeah. But when I became a journalist, I thought it would be, I've been thinking about this book for, for years and years. And it's basically just an excuse to go and ask the questions I always had. But, you know, like I've got some kind of police badge and I'm allowed to now. I love the fact that being a journalist, you're allowed to go behind the scenes and you're allowed to ask questions. For some reason, as soon as you tell people you're writing a book, they're much more welcoming in terms of the back room of their business or whatever it is. Uh, it was just a personal thing, really. Just wanted to know. You said you had a curiosity about death trades and even that language for me, I had never really 
considered this idea of death trades. Was there a catalyst that was the instigator for you to say, okay, I'm actually going to do the research and write this book? I have been, as a journalist, I've been writing around the death industry for years. I've always written things that kind of focus on death or loss in some way. And that loss isn't always death. I I wrote for a while about boxers and how they dealt with loss. I'm just really interested in why people do the things that they do. But I think I became conscious of the fact that there's this whole ecosystem of death workers. When I was 13 and my friend Harriet drowned, and I remember being at her funeral and all of my classmates were there and all the teachers, but I don't really remember that bit because I just remember seeing the white closed coffin in front of us. And all I could think about was what she might look like. And all I had to go on was horror movies and also my own imagination. And so I was filling it with all sorts of horrible things because if you've just got a blank space, that's what your imagination does. But I noticed there were lots of other people hanging around in suits and by the hearse. And I thought that they they had been around when she was put in her coffin. Maybe they would know what she looked like. And it, they disappeared very soon after the, the ceremony. So I, I've always been interested in these people who kind of come in and tidy up in a way and then disappear. I think mm. they're fascinating. What's your view in terms of society's general perception of what these trades are? I don't think they think about them until they they have to, until somebody dies and they have to call them and then they will deal with them for the two weeks or whatever it is leading up to the funeral and then they'll go back to not thinking about them. And I thought that became very, very obvious when COVID was going on at its peak and in its beginning. We were shown on the news what the insides of hospitals looked like, but no one was really talking until it got really bad. And then you might see some news reports. No one was really talking about just the sheer number of new bodies that somebody had to deal with. Mm. And I'm still in touch with many of the people I interviewed in my book. Lara, who she's the one who showed me the autopsies in the basement of uh, St. Thomas's Hospital, which is just by the Thames. During the the first peak of COVID, she was put up in a hospital across the road from from where she works, a hotel, I mean. So she goes back to the, the hospital because she was just on call all the time because it was so overwhelming, the number of bodies. And they weren't performing autopsies on all of them. It was that had kind of paused. It was more um, admin of registering bodies and then sending them to funeral homes who were also overwhelmed. But to get to work, she had to go through this, you know, the protesters with their placards saying that the virus wasn't real and none of this was happening. I just, there's this knock-on effect of not, not thinking about other people and what happens and just the practicalities of everything. Like the reason that those people could say this isn't happening, we can't see anything, like where is the proof of this is ha- that this is happening, is because the workers were doing their work. And now there's a wall along the Thames between the hospital and the water of the river. There's this wall which is now covered in red love hearts that people have drawn and there's names inside all of the love hearts. And it go, if you stand at one end of the wall, 
you can't see the end of it. It just goes and goes and goes. And though that's the COVID memorial wall. Wow. And that is where just over the fence, people were holding protests in front of the hospital. It was infuriating because I was still writing this book during lockdown. So I was in one tab on my computer. I was keeping an eye on the news. And in the other, I was getting messages from people who were working with all the dead bodies going, there are just so many and we don't know what to do. And there's always been a disconnect between, well, since the 20th century, between us and our dead. And I think it became so much more obvious at that point. And I just found it fascinating. Um, Obviously, the Queen died. Um, I live in London. There was the big queue for people to go and um, pay their respects to, so they were lining up to go to Westminster to see the Queen's coffin. And it was this huge queue that ran for miles, but it went past the COVID wall. So everyone was lining up to see one coffin. And there were all these thousands of people who didn't, you know, many of them didn't get a funeral. And I think there's something coming in terms of our mental health and the state of where we are. Like what we've just been through is enormous. And our government, at least, is kind of pretending it didn't happen. And something I learned from one of the people I spoke to, who is a disaster recovery specialist, is that part of grieving is acknowledging what happened, happened. And I don't think that's fully happened with COVID yet. COVID has been interesting on on so many different levels. It's just forced us to reconsider so many aspects of how we function. And even as you're talking there about the COVID wall, how people are walking past that to see the Queen, and then how might they be trying not to pay attention to it because they don't yeah. want to experience the the grief or the horror of so many people dying from from such a virus and and I'm sure you yeah. formulated some sort of view around this based on your own experience and your own research so I'd be interested in what you think well I think with the lining up for the queen I'm not even sure it was about the queen it was about people looking for some kind of meaning and of course, there were the people who were just being tourists and the coffin was another another thing on the, the list. But I do think, especially after, after the last two years we've had, where death is everywhere, but we can't really see it. People are looking for meaning. And I was writing this book where I was saying that we should think more about death and we should be closer to our dead. And at that exact point where I was writing that, people weren't allowed to go to their own funerals. And I was writing about how I was invited to help dress a dead man for his coffin, get him ready for his funeral. And he was a complete stranger to me. And it was this profound experience that now I wouldn't miss for the world if it was someone that I love. I want to be there because I think it's incredibly important. And it is a transformative moment that we have been missing out on for years and years just because we don't know what we're allowed to do because the funeral industry has told us you shouldn't see this you're not allowed back here you know and and you are and you can but while i was writing that we should be doing that or we should at least think about the fact that we have the chance people weren't allowed to and i'm not ready to i think there's something to write about this but i'm not ready to because i'm seeing how it plays out i'm i don't think we're okay. I think the juxtaposition 
of I'm not a monarchist. I'm not a Republican in the sense that that we shouldn't have a monarchy, really. But there, the picture of these the peasants really lining up next to the wall with all of their named dead to go and see one coffin when they couldn't see their own, I think is a horrible one. And people were celebrating it. And I am conflicted about it for reasons that I can't quite articulate yet, but I've I've been turning it over in my mind. I really can't get past it. And I couldn't, I couldn't really get behind people celebrating it. When you came up with the idea of, of exploring death trades, how, how did you decide which trades specifically to to consider? Well, I wanted to follow the body from deathbed to burial or cremation, and I knew it would pass through several people before it got there. And so I made a big list, and not everybody I put on the list, not all of the jobs are in the book. The reason the book took so long is it took a long time to find the right people. And this is because a lot of people in the funeral industry don't want to talk to journalists mm. because they've been written up in a in a in a way that I wouldn't want to be talked about either. So I had to prove myself through several layers of character reference. And also the book, I wanted to talk about Australia and the UK and America, but I wasn't set on it being a kind of road trip across America. It just became one because that's where the people were who would talk to me. And I, I, I don't think I could plan the book that it ended up being. It ended up taking on a life of its own, really. And I was just following it wherever the people were and finding interesting things along the way that I also didn't know existed. Like I didn't know the bereavement midwife was a job. That came out because I saw a baby autopsy in St. Thomas's Hospital. And it occurred to me in a way that made me feel quite stupid that midwives are death workers. They are life workers and death workers because not all pregnancies end in a, a living baby. And so I just wanted to talk to a midwife. So I I contacted SANS, which is a neonatal loss charity, and asked them if they would put me in touch with a midwife. And they sent me Claire Beasley, who is a, a midwife who only delivers stillborns or babies who aren't going to live for very long. And there are, she's not the only bereavement midwife in the world. There are many. And I didn't know they existed. So it's, it's she was, you know, she's part of the death industry, but she is the, the most hidden part, I think, because you may organize the, the funeral of your grandfather, but if you really only meet a bereavement midwife, if you yourself are losing a baby. So it's an extra secret part of it. And I think that someone like her should be celebrated because she got into that, that job because she saw that you know she was there at the at the birth of somebody's baby who wasn't going to live for very long and she saw that it could all be done better that this moment which is horrible she couldn't fix it but she could do better for the families so people like that are doing so much work in the background to hold us all together mm-hmm. and then we don't hear about them she was the most surprising to me and she wasn't on my original plan. She was just completely missing. Yeah. How did you find 
from your side, from your emotional sort of psychological well-being, uh, how did you deal with some of these uh, people that you spoke with and when you were exploring what the the type of work and the sort of situations that they dealt with? Because some of them are quite harrowing. How did you look after yourself as you were doing this research? Well, I was remarkably fine with so much of it, um, except for when I wasn't, which was around the baby autopsy and speaking to Claire Beasley, the bereavement midwife, was part of my trying to figure out how to file that experience away in my mind because it was just floating loose and upsetting me. But I did see, speaking to the disaster response specialist, the um, you know, he was showing me pictures of rotting bodies after typhoons and all sorts of things. And I was okay with it because I think I was meeting people who were helping and who were doing something with that situation. I wasn't just being shown horrors and saying, isn't this bad? Look, mm. look at this bad thing that's happening. I was being shown something and then being told how they fixed it, how they helped the the grieving families. And all of the the thing that things that really stuck with me were all the tiny little things that these people do, not because it's part of the job description, but because to them it's the right thing to do. And there were lots of little examples of that, like the grave diggers. When I spoke to them, I, I went to watch them dig a grave and then bury somebody. And he had a little pot of soil that he tucked behind a headstone for the vicar. And I looked inside the soil in the pot, which he said was the bit where the vicar goes ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and he throws the, the soil onto the coffin. And I looked inside the pot and it was a different kind of soil to what was coming out of the ground, which was very heavy clay. And Mike, the grave digger, who was in his 70s and has been doing this job since he was a teenager, he kind of looked at the pot like he hadn't thought about it in years because that's just what he does. And he said, oh, I collect, you know, it's not soil from here. I collect mole hills from my garden because the soil, the moles always throw up softer soil. It was very sandy and, and light. And he said he does that because he doesn't want the vicar to throw a lump of clay onto the coffin because the noise upsets the, the grieving family. Whereas this softer soil just lands like feathers. He doesn't have to do that. He that he his job is digging a grave. And we've got this cartoon picture of grave diggers and he everybody's jobs kind of bleed into everybody else's. They're all nobody was doing a job just within their job description. They were always going beyond. And that was I I just thought that was really lovely. And the fact there was another funeral director I spoke to Terry, who um, looks after the medical cadavers in the Mayo Clinic, he was talking about when he was a funeral director and when people bring in the little bag of clothes to dress their dead person in, the one that they hand to the funeral home and say, dress them in this, he said they always, always forget underwear. Uh, he says it's just a strange thing that humans do. They will bring the suit, they'll bring the shoes, they forget the underwear. And so he didn't feel right burying a person without their underwear. So he would keep spares like of different sizes and dress people properly before he buried them. And no one would ever know, mm -hmm. but he would. So I think that's what made me okay with 
with everything. The idea that these people are there to help. It's not just unchecked horror. And there are people in charge of it. And that they're very important roles. And as I said in the intro, you know, we just don't think about them at all. They are doing these tasks every day and some 365 days a year, you know, and yet we give them so little consideration and so little thought. And yet it's, you know, for many of these roles, it's filled with, with kindness. And if they weren't there, think about what would happen. Yeah. It is this massively important part of the world and of the the workforce that we always imagine will be there. We haven't thought about what would happen if they weren't there. But it's filled with people who don't really, like they were talking to me because I wanted to interview them. But again and again, I kept finding people. The first question they'd ask me when we sat down was, why do you want to talk to me? Because most people don't, they don't want to, you know, when they go to pick up their kids at the school gates and somebody says, oh, what do you do for a living? They'll, They'll say something else. They'll say they're a teacher, but they won't mention that they're a teacher of embalming. They'll just say teacher and then the conversation will move on because they've found that their job is a mood killer. It ruins dinner parties. So it's easier just to not talk about it. But I loved talking to them because in my job, I speak to lots of Hollywood stars and TV stars and people who have been media trained. So when you you speak to them, they've got these polished lines that have gone through several levels of PR checks and whatever. And you never, it's very rare to feel like you're getting something real from them. Mm -hmm. But the people I spoke to are just normal people. And Some of them had been interviewed before, but most of them hadn't. So I was asking them questions that seemed pretty basic to me, but they had never been asked them. And that's my favorite thing to do. I love speaking to just normal people. They're so interesting. Mm. Whereas Hollywood actors, you kind of know what you're going to get before you get there. (laughs) And regular people, you have no idea. So which person or which trade You've spoken about the bereavement midwife. So which others really sparked your interest or that you learnt something completely new that you had no idea about? The disaster response company is something that I had. It's another one where as soon as I learned that it existed, I felt stupid for not imagining it. This So the guy I spoke to, Mo, he's an ex-murder detective from London, and he had retired from the police force, and this company hired him because it's a a company that is made up of ex-police and all sorts of, you've got doctors and ex-firemen and all sorts of jobs, the kind of useful jobs. And it's a company that... If a plane crashes or a train crashes or there's some kind of huge natural disaster, a team of people with all of their different skills and knowledge will fly into the disaster area and take care of it. And there will be the people who pick up the pieces of people who exploded on the plane and they will identify them and they will find the families and there are the people who will pick up the personal effects from the plane crash and then take them back to London, clean them and try and find the people who own them. And there are people who 
sit on the phones and take calls from people who are worried about their family being involved or they're inquiring about the missing. And they just assume the name of the company whose plane it was that crashed and take care of everything. And it's because plane companies, although they fly planes all the time, they don't really have brilliant plans for what happens when it goes wrong. Mo told me that it's a strange thing, but when a plane company makes a plan for what happens if there is a crash, they always make the plan at their own airport, which isn't usually where where crashes happen. They'll crash in the middle of a Brazilian rainforest or something. So this company have people all around the world can deploy people all around the world and they have connections everywhere so they can they have a plan in place and it, it's it's a commercial thing you pay for their service but i had never considered this idea yeah. and also we've got this idea of what an embalmer does they're in the back room of the funeral home they're injecting something into a body i didn't know that embalmers were part of the disaster response team who are sent to the place where the crash is because in order to send those pieces of bodies home they need to be embalmed so that they can get there and i didn't know that so as soon as you learn about one part of the funeral industry or the death industry you realize that it's all connected and people do so much more than we think they do and the fact that they're looking after personal effects which is something i was told that police don't really think about because it's not involved in solving the crime. It's purely an emotional thing. And I was looking at these binders of photographs of personal effects. And, you know, there were things like there was an Ian Rankin novel that had come from a plane crash that they'd found floating in the sea. So it was all fat and bloated. And they were just they didn't know who's who owned it yet, but they were holding on to it in case somebody wanted it because they said that there is untold emotional weight in these normal everyday objects that people had with them when they died and families deserve them back if they want them. And some people don't want them, but I really love the fact that somebody is looking after them and has thought about it. You also talk in the book about the Grenfell Tower fire Mm. and how something like, was it 750,000 individual objects were retrieved from those apartments. I read that and it was I was astounded. Would never have occurred to me that that would have been part of the role is retrieving all of these individual objects that may have some quite incredible meaning for some people. Exactly. And they're just normal objects. They can be coins or, you know, mm. a t-shirt or a bike. But like you said, it didn't occur to you. It didn't occur to me either. And I think that is what most of my book is. It's stuff that didn't occur to us. And to the people who do the work, it's just the basic everyday stuff, but we don't think about it. And now that I know what's going on, it's baffling to me that I existed for so long without, I sensed there was something I didn't know. Otherwise I wouldn't have done the book, but now I just want to tell people about it. You also mentioned before that having the opportunity to dress person was quite transformative for you. So how has writing, doing the research and writing this book affected your own view of of life, death, and uh, maybe even grief? Well, it's affected me in the sense that I'm not afraid of death. 
I'm not afraid of being dead. I am still afraid of dying. That bit frightens me because that bit, well, there's something painful and sad about it. But I think all of this adds up to just make me more conscious and appreciative of time because I've seen so many dead bodies and some of them were babies. And I think the oldest one I saw was 105. And so you get a lifetime, but there's no saying how long it will be. And after doing this book, if I don't want to do something, I will weasel out of it. <laughs> I, I just, and I can't be bothered arguing with people on the internet. You know, all the things that are just time waste. I, obviously, I still waste time, but the things that are clearly just adding nothing, I just can't be bothered with anymore. And I found that with other people too. The The murder detective who works at the disaster company, he said that when he came back from his first ever plane crash and saw that amount of death, he came back and he could no longer be bothered doing paperwork, which is quite a problem for police. Mm -hmm. Their jobs are mainly paperwork. So I think that's what's, what's changed in my life. Grief now, I can see that there are important things that need to happen for you to be able to grieve properly. And for me, funerals in Australia, I've been to funerals in Australia, I've been to funerals here in the UK, and I find them meaningless. They are very stiff and the coffin is there, but it's closed. And I'm not even one of those ones who say we should put up bunting and put flowers in our hair and go dancing in the graveyard. That's not what I mean. I just think that everybody will have a different personal way of processing what has just happened. Being told that someone you love has just died is massive. And for some people, they won't want to see the body. I have friends who've read my book who go, I don't agree with you. And that's fine. The point of my book is knowing that these options are available because up till now, we've all been fitting into little boxes that we're told we need to fit into. You can do other things. And if you need to dress your, there are other other religions in, in the UK dress their dead in the back of the funeral home, but the very, the Catholics, the Christians, they don't. But personally, you are able to if you want to. And so for me, that, I think it's an annoying thing I have where I have to see things to believe things. And I think that's a good thing in a journalist in terms of fact checking, but kind of annoying as a person sometimes. But I'm accepting that in myself now. And so I, I now feel better prepared for people around me dying. And I feel like I have put on my own oxygen mask in a way. Um, so I'll be able to help, for example, my sister, who I know will fall apart. So I feel like I've, I've done some preparation. You never know what's going to happen until you get into the room, until something happens. So, but, but I feel like I've done the work. Yeah, it's like the, you know, the number of people after the Queen died, the number of people said, you know, we know she was 96 and we know she'd just lost her husband, but we're still completely astounded that she's, that she's dead, you know, to accept the inevitability of it and, and that that inevitability could happen at any moment. Well, that was something I thought was interesting when I went to see the cryonics people who I believed would be crazy because they... I went in thinking that they believe that they freeze bodies that will be reanimated and they definitely think that will happen. And I didn't find that. I found people who said it might happen, 
and the diff- the only thing is they know what happens to bodies that go in the ground or are burned and they see themselves as a kind of experimental group and they said this might not happen but we're trying but the guy i spoke to dennis he works as he works driving an ambulance around milwaukee and he said that to him the most death denying people are the the family you know he might be treating a person who has a do not resuscitate order and meanwhile his family are all around him saying do something you have to save him life saving emergency stuff is brutal doing cpr can break ribs and the person with the do not resuscitate has made peace with the the fact that they will die and he said the most death denying people are the family around him who won't accept that death is something to be fought it's not something that happens naturally it's yeah. the it means everything's gone wrong which isn't true it has to happen it has to happen at some point and if somebody has made their peace with it and said i'm okay with it happening to me then you have to let them so i thought that was a really interesting point to come from a man who freezes bodies in the hopes that they will be reanimated thousands of years from now he's thought about all of it and it's also the use of language how you write and how people generally write about death i interviewed a, a linguist and he said that in his research the word death is probably the most negatively perceived word in the english language mm. and it was just really interesting to me and how we do use language like fighting we need to fight the illness or we need to fight battling yeah battling and and these sorts of things and it was just really interesting to hear how we never question that language that we even want a what is a good death or a peaceful death and how we don't ever really consider whether in fact that's realistic some of the language that we use whether it's helpful or unhelpful well linguistically i think the death industry is is interesting in terms of its euphemisms and how many there are and i always think that euphemisms aren't helpful they're there because you want to hide something but euphemisms give your imagination space to run wild it's like i was talking about with my friend dying in the the white coffin and not knowing what was inside it i think if you just say what is happening sometimes the truth can be brutal but there are ways of saying it that aren't euphemism that mm. are true and when i spoke to the disaster response guy he was saying you have to tell the family the truth and what has happened you can't fudge things you cannot try to make things sound better because they know something horrible has happened and they know when you're trying to pull the wool over their eyes mm. so you have to tell them as much as you can and if they want to see the body they can do that too you can advise them that it might not be good for them mm. but if they want to you have to tell them they have the option you need to give people all of the information you cannot hide anything behind words or pretending that there is some rule that says that they're not allowed to do something you cannot be in control of somebody else's feelings mm. because everybody's got death is so subjective i'm finding that in in the way people respond to my book in in reviews proper newspaper reviews and also reader ones on goodreads death is so subjective and you bring so much baggage to it yourself and so you cannot force that baggage on anyone else you've written this book 
so beautifully. It's really respectful, but it's it's very heartfelt. Uh, but the other thing that I found really nice was that it's very funny at times. <laughs> <laughs> so how important do you think humour is when we are examining and, and exploring death and dying and these sorts of things such as people who work daily around death and dying? Well, I think that's what humans do when things get really dark. We crack jokes. People who work around the dead make jokes all the time. It's it's not disrespectful always. There are many stories of the police here in the UK doing disrespectful things around dead bodies and going to jail for it. Just lightening the mood around dead bodies, which humans feel compelled to do, I don't think it's disrespectful. It's a way of coping. It's a way of taking the tension out of the situation. Being in the car, that shiny black car on the way to a funeral, following the coffin to the graveyard, and someone in your family makes a joke. That laugh is always a full-bodied laugh. You didn't expect it. It came from nowhere, and it makes you feel better. And it doesn't mean you're any less sad. It doesn't mean you're not feeling the gravity of what's going on. It's just a way of coping. It's hugely important. Humour doesn't negate the sadness or the grief or the loss. They're not mutually exclusive. I've got one final question that I'd like to ask is what you've talked to me about today is that you've had, ever since you were a child, death has been right there in your life. It's been a, a major part of your life. It's been an influence. It's been a motivator for, for your career even. In writing this book, what's something that you've learnt about yourself in terms of death, whether it's your own death, whether it's the death of, of somebody else, but engaging with all these extraordinary people who probably lead, for some of us, extraordinary, for others, ordinary lives. What have you learned that you perhaps didn't know before about yourself? I feel like I've vindicated, in a way, my small self who had lots of questions and who was made to feel strange for asking them. I think they were the right questions to ask. And I don't think I was a weird kid. And I think there are lots of kids out there who are like me. And around the Queen, there, there were lots of articles flying around saying, how do we talk to kids about death? And all of them said, tell them the truth. And I think finishing this book, <laughs> what hit me was I was right. I wasn't the strange one. I think all the teachers who tried to dodge my questions were the strange one. The priest who was telling me not to ask questions like that. We ask questions about heaven, not about worms and dead bodies. You have to tell kids the truth. When they ask things, you tell them. And there are ways of telling them that aren't horrific. They're just factual. Kids have amazing ways of taking on information and keeping the bit that is useful to them and dropping the bit that they don't understand. It's like watching The Simpsons. It works on so many levels. You know, there are jokes for the parents that may be rude, but they're not rude. They're not bad for the kids to watch because the kids didn't get they flew well over their head. I think, yeah, what I've learned is that I've kind of, I can look back and go, you weren't a strange kid. You were perfectly fine. Everybody else was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, look, thank 
thank you. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, Hayley. It's been fascinating. It's, it really is a beautiful book. So for those of you who might uh, be interested, it's called All the Living and the Dead. Fascinating, but also very beautiful and heartfelt read. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today for our little podcast called What About Death here in Australia. And yeah, I wish you all the very best and please continue your work getting death out there. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Next time on What About Death, I speak with Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arizona in the USA. She's also the author of the fascinating book, The Grieving Brain, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss. Dr. O'Connor is a leader in the field of prolonged grief and has a particular interest in what happens in the brain when we experience loss and how that affects how we engage with loss and grief. I hope you will join me next time. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.